0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. This week's episode is, well, gosh, who could be a more perfect guest on The Secret Life of Cookies than... Okay, I'm joined by Baking Royalty, the world-famous cookbook author, Rose Levy Berenbaum, famous for her cake bible, bread bible, among her other 12 cookbooks. Today, she's here to discuss the cookie bible. Yes, the cookie bible on the secret life of cookies. We go super nerd on flour and how to keep your cakes from falling in the middle. Discuss her friendship with Julia Child, and for all you folks you think you can't bake because you don't like precision, tune in. We have some good news for you. Hello, Rose Levy Berenbaum, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. Um,
1: Hi, Marissa. Cookies? <laughs> <laughs> it's, nice to
0: tra- it's nice to talk to someone with three, three very long mouthy last names because I think we're mouthy women. Um, it's... Mm-hmm having you on The Secret Life of Cookies is a little bit like having like the Pope on a Catholic podcast. It's, um, wow. well, I mean, The Secret Life of Cookies, you are, I mean, you're the very outspoken life of cookies right now. But for those <laughs> of you in the um, outside audience um, who maybe somehow don't know who Rose Levy Berenbaum is because I don't know, maybe you've been in a cave dweller or something in your life. <laughs> um, Rose, among other things, is the uh, the woman behind the Cake Bible that changed so many home cooks' lives, and um, chefs' lives. In um, gave many people their start as bakers, I think. Um, and since then, you have produced four hundred and twenty eight different. No, I don't know how many different mm-hmm. cookbooks, um, giving us Bibles for pastry, cookies. I mean, that's coming. Uh, ice cream. Um, uh, and bread Bread. of course my god the bread bible I'm like literally looking at it from where I'm standing the bread bible um and a a little lesser known one but the Christmas cookies book which is terrific and here we stand on the precipice of the birth of the cookie bible so Rose Mm -hmm. um you know um this this podcast the way it works is that Sometimes you, um, my guest cooks with me. Today, I am gonna be doing the cooking while you sit there and tell me wonderful stories of the world, but I'm making a cookie today that I feel it's a little bit like log rolling in my time, but this is a cookie that you chose, like the greatest moment of my life, you chose one of my recipes (laughs) to go into your cookie Bible, which kind of blows my mind. Um, in many, many ways, uh, but Marissa, I am making-
1: considering that, considering that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but considering that you, not all that sorry, but I just have to say this, considering that you wrote the most marvelous forward to the Ice Cream Bliss book, how could I not include? I mean, you you are a cookie person, and when I heard that you were doing what you're doing today, the peanut butter shortbread with chocolate chips, I just had to try it, and then I thought, that's it, this will represent you in the Cookie Bible.
0: Well, um, thank you very, very much. Um, anybody, since this is a podcast, you can't tell, but I'm actually sort of pink and blushing at the moment. Um, but I am making peanut butter shortbread and I think it is one of my favorite cookies that I make, um, with apologies to all the people who can't eat, um, peanut butter. I do have an orange chocolate chip shortbread that works really nicely, but this cookie because of the peanut butter and because it uses confectioner sugar, I think ends up so delightfully crumbly, isn't it? Doesn't the confectioner's sugar really add to its
1: consistency? Oh yeah. It makes it more tender too because peanut butter could tend to make it a little bit less tender. It balances it perfectly. To be honest, I thought I would never even consider another shortbread cookie because (gasps) I had nailed my perfect little round ones in the wedges. And I thought, what else do you need? And then I found (laughs) out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> what I needed was peanut butter. And um, chocolate, and an chocolate. unbeatable combination. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it, it worked it is on sort of, the first try.
0: It, it is sort of perfect combination. <laughs> um, so I will post the recipe on my website, but the book, it will be part of the greater cookie Bible. And when does the cookie Bible come out?
1: November 9th, which seems like a long time away. And it is when you're waiting for something, mm-hmm. but the way things are passing, time is passing right now will be here before we know it.
0: Exactly. I have no sense. Have you found that during this whole COVID pandemic that time is like? If I asked you quickly, what month is it? Would you really have a clue?
1: <laughs> well, I sometimes get them confused. I mean, my birthday is this month, so that's how I nailed this one. But to tell <laughs> you the truth, I suddenly realized just this week that, in a way, it seems like it reminds me of Dickens. Uh, this it was the worst of times, it was the best of times, you know, The Tale of Two Cities, because I feel almost like the year evaporated. And then I also feel like I got so much done within that year, because this is when you were asking me about how long it took to write the book, I had total focus for over a year because I was isolated. I still am.
0: In and fact, in two
1: days, I'm completely free. We can get together. I don't know about you, but I, I'm actually immunized. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's sort of like the great way to sort of come out of this whole sort of, I don't know, we've been like, I feel like I've been living in the coal cellar for a while. Um, Yeah, but isn't it weird how
1: you feel, you begin to feel like if only you could get the vaccine, then life would be perfect. You forget that there are other things that could happen. You know, what did (laughs) Hamlet say about the flesh to heir to all the things and arrows? That was outrageous fortune, but you know what (laughs) I mean? I you know, exactly. it's like the vaccine doesn't cure life it just cures COVID hopefully you know you still have to be, take care of yourself yeah, that's a
0: really good point which I think you can <laughs> Thank you. I think um peanut butter chocolate chip shortbread
1: are medicinal though I'm not quite sure um I think all cookies are medicinal because they make you feel happy and good and that is a very important part of your health I think, I'm, and plus you, what, they're small, you can just have one, if you can help yourself. Yeah. It's not like a big hunk of something that, well, you've got to finish it or you want to finish it. It's like, oh, can I just have one more? Because there's so little, you know, it's only little. It's so, delicious. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: so you mm-hmm.
0: have been practicing, you've been, talk to me about the process of, you know, how do you sort through all those recipes that you have that you've worked on in order to get the ones that go into your cookbook especially something like a book that we call a bible where you have every manner of cookie from bar cookie to drop cookie to um uh you know shape cookies like i'm doing right now (laughs)
1: is that blue nail polish by the way I'm sorry, (laughs) that was a non-sequitur. Or do you have blue cookie dough on your fingers? I'm mesmerized by it. All right, so how do I choose? Well, first of all, there are many cookies that I did look in the Rose's Christmas cookies. I think it's about 30 years old now. And I have a different approach now of writing and also of making the cookies. So I revisited my favorite ones from there. I did want to be all inclusive. And when I, in fact, when, I was doing the ice cream book, Erin um, Jean McDowell, who did the styling, uh, we were at her house because that was pre-COVID. And we, were, uh, we saw some of the things she'd been working on for some of her books and, and appearances. And one of them was what I called Blondie's Blondie's because mm. they're bar cookies and I basically don't like things that are super sweet. And this was an exception. And I called it blondies. Blondies because nobody knows because Erin always wears a bandana, but she has the most gorgeous, platinum blonde, curly hair underneath it. So that's how I called it that. But you know, I thought, okay, brownies, I, I love because of the dark chocolate it takes away it balances the sweetness the blondies don't have any dark chocolate somehow these are just so wonderful in texture and so delicious i had to include that so constantly along the way i'm discovering oh the most amazing cookie in the book i think it actually is not even mine originally it's from zap townsend who's a chocolatier and he's in texas and he posted his cookie on the blog and it's a truffle cookie so it has a truffle baked into a chocolate cookie yeah oh. i didn't want you to have that recipe because i wanted to make it for you <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you're going to be able to wait i mean imagine that when it's first baked it's really melty but it stays melty and delicious so It's just amazing cookie discovery after discovery, including ideas that I have. I can't think of any offhand, but since I'm constantly thinking about this, you know, last night I actually dreamt that I was making a cherry rhubarb pie. Can you believe that? (laughs) I mean, did I make it or did I dream it? So when you're obsessed (laughs) and ingredients and new ingredients that are available, like sum sesame for tahini that I use for my hummus, oh my God, the tahini crisps are just amazing. And bene wafers, I never thought I liked them, but that's because the ingredients weren't available that made them really good, the right type that's of sesame seed, you know. So it's ingredients that make me discover new ideas as well. Yeah, that's
0: what I, you had sort of, um, you, you answered the question I was going to ask, which is you said you've made some changes like in how you like make it create cookies over time. And so you're think, saying that really it's ingredients that um, affect, have affected how you do it. Have you, have, have there been technique changes that you've done? Like right now, I'm, Following your technique for these cookies, which if to anyone who is at home thinking, what am I going to do with how do I roll these cookies out? Normally you put a piece of dough between your two hands and you roll it into a ball, but use it to smoosh it first, then roll it into a ball so it doesn't crack. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. your precise way of doing this is absolutely like that's like changed. It changes the world for me because now my cookie doesn't crack. So thank you.
1: Thank you too, because (laughs) years ago, Cecily Brownstone, who was the food editor most of her life for Associated Press said, Rose, never be a typewriter cook. And I said, what is that? Because I have a very fast typist and I was very proud of that. (laughs) The idea of being a typewriter cook is that you think, oh, this will work until you write it up, but you don't try it. And (gasps) this is how I felt about revisiting my old recipes. Yes, I loved them at the time, but when I made them again, I found new ways to do it. And I'm constantly taking notes the weights and one of my big things about cookie baking one of my big tips is you can't or it's not a good idea to have large and cook smaller cookies on the same sheet because the larger ones underbake and the smaller ones overbake or you know vice versa so uh, i discovered that cookie scoops aren't really the answer because they leave some of it in the scoop Sometimes I use measuring spoons as long as I can get it all out, but I like to weigh the cookies because that's a surefire way. So we now give, and we never used to do that, the finished weight of the dough. So if you end up with, say, 400 grams or seven ounces of cookie dough, you know how many cookies you can make if each one is going to be, say, 15 grams. So it makes it easier for you. I mean, it may look a little intimidating when you see all that information, but the point of the information is to make it easier. And I'm so pleased with the design of this book because it's actually a former classmate of mine from high school, Music and Art, who is the art director at Houghton Mifflin and at the publishers, Ty Blanche, and she did the most beautiful job of design so that it looks as approachable as cookies actually are and should be. But it's a real challenge to write it in a way to design it in a way that people realize that it's easier and not harder
0: right I think some people um, are daunted when they look at a page of one of your recipes because it's got lots on the page but I think but it's there so that nobody makes a mistake that anyone can do it Um, a lot of people also I find when I say oh yeah I do a lot of pastry Mm -hmm. work and they're like I can't do that I, I, it's, it's a science and, and I,
1: I can't be that precise. And wh- what would you say to them? Well, science is there to help you not to stump, make you stumble, you know? So <laughs> if, if you don't need that information that's why I don't put it right in the middle of the recipe because after you see it the first time you think I get it and you can transfer it to other things too but you don't wanna to have to reread it every time you make the recipe. And that's how it's designed in fact in the ebook it's really easy that way although i don't think you can edit ebooks when you buy them but i would suggest even printing out a recipe and then putting down or retyping it putting down say you have a favorite recipe you make again and again maybe you can tailor it to make the instructions even easier for yourselves when you don't need some of that information it's like that's having it. there that. yeah i think
0: that's a great tip and i also believe that um it's nice to hear how you want your cookbook used. I I don't want to like be bitchy, but I don't think a lot of cookbooks out there today are as uh, polished and tested as your recipes. There's a reason that you have things written the way that you do. And there's a reason that how many, how many times do you test
1: a recipe and how many times do you proofread your cookbook? Oh God, the proofing is endless. That's the hardest part. You know, it's a metaphor for life because even professional proofers say that you see it as it should be, not how it is. You know? <laughs> and so sometimes your vision, you know how that works as, as a <laughs> word person, you know. So as far as testing, as many times as we need to, even if it's a small change, I learned that many years ago when I worked in the test kitchen of Ladies Home Journal Magazine. And if we even change the amount of salt, we had to retest because you don't know what one thing does to affect another. In fact, I remember once in one of my books, we were doing latkes for Hanukkah and the stylist was making them and they weren't browning right. And the editor said, you go up and you do it. And I said, oh, God, I don't like to work in other people's kitchens. This was in the photographer's kitchen. She said, if you do it, you'll see what's wrong. And that was Marie Gorn Shelley, she was so brilliant. And the minute I got up there, I said, these don't have the right consistency before they're fried. Did you put salt in? And she said, no, because you don't see it. So I thought, what difference does it make? It's a stylist. And although she could have made, she did make the perfect cool whip dollop after making thousands of them for the ad, she didn't understand the science of cooking. And nowadays, when people do styling, they know that they have to make it exactly as the recipe dictates. Although some of the stylists have told me that they have to rewrite people's recipes because when they give it to them, they don't work. That's another story.
0: Right. But that's another. So. And that's, I, I think that's something for people to bear in mind that when you're buying a cookbook or getting a cookbook, you know. If you get, I mean, I feel that your cookbooks are completely spot on, but I don't always find that. And especially it's a problem when you are getting recipes off of the internet, says a person who has her recipes on the internet, but I do my best mm-hmm. to test them as much as possible. And um, it's really hard to be your own proofreader as people who have written in to me and said, hey, where does the salt go? You forgot to put it in.
1: Yeah. Well, um, this is the thing I'm so grateful. Woody and I love when people report back and say, something is wrong because we've now put so many things also on our blog that it's harder to make sure that everything is transferred correctly there. Whereas the book, we have the opportunity of going through it so many times. And still, I mean, do you know that the Cake Bible didn't have a single error in all, it was a thousand page manuscript. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I think nobody else would know that Bert Green, who was a really dear friend and editor of Daily News, he was a food writer. And he said, we always read back and forth at the end. And he had another person to read with him. You mean back and forth
0: when he has his manuscript?
1: Exactly, I didn't really explain that right. At the end, when the final version of the manuscript comes, which they called the blues in those days, now it's electronic, and you read it back against what the last version had been that was supposedly correct and you catch the errors. So since I didn't have a Woody in those days, uh, I read it into a tape recorder and played it back against that. And then I highlighted everything I found And I put a big black arrow as well. And sometimes they would fix one thing on a page, sometimes none, sometimes all of them. So I said to my husband, who is a radiologist, how could they be missing the highlighting? He asked the operative question, what color did you use? And I said, I used two colors, red and green. And he said, those are the two colors, colorblind people don't see. Now he knew that because most radiologists, it's one area in the profession, medical profession where you don't really need color and that's what most radiologists are colorblind he wasn't and he claimed that he could see more defined shades of gray and black and white but still you know i said well okay if they didn't see it then at least they could have seen the black marks i didn't know until like my sixth book that what they were doing at the publishers cuz everybody worked from hard copy then is they would photocopy all my highlighting disappeared. <laughs> it would give the, the original one to somebody else, not to the inputter. So this is what you go through when you want to make things work. But with a, a cake Bible, maybe it isn't as serious if it's one recipe for one cake that doesn't work. But if you're making a wedding cake and you invest all your time, your ingredients and people's hope in getting one at their, on their wedding day and yep. it doesn't work because something got messed up, it's heartbreaking. And so I wasn't going to let that happen. And I don't think I've ever been quite quite as vigilant with with any of my other books, but I am allowed to go back and change things in the next printing and luckily the cake Bible is now in its 56th printing, which is like a miracle. But another thing is that having a blog, having social media, you can post corrections and we have something, I originally called it the errata page, and then people thought it is erotic. So I changed it to, to corrections, and so maybe I should have left it. It would have drawn them in more. Exactly, <laughs> you would have gotten all sorts of people on your site. Um, oh yeah, I've not I'm, I have never gotten any of those types of people you're referring to. I mean, that not I noticed that you noticed. I've gotten these. criticism. <laughs> you know what? My, oh, I told you, Marissa, the latest criticism I got, and you'll really appreciate this, since your husband is from England and you also study there that my Yorkshire popovers, the people from Yorkshire have, some of them have really criticized me ruthlessly. They say, it's not a popover, it's a pudding. No, so finally I ended up saying, I think I sent this to you, that it becomes a popover when it's baked in a popover pan and that it's really delicious. So what do, what difference does it make really what we call it a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I couldn't resist, that. <laughs> and, that, and that kind of stopped, or maybe it's still going on. And I just haven't v- revisited my Facebook page. I mean, I didn't mean to offend people with their authentic recipe, and I sort of found myself wondering if somebody made laka and called it a, I don't know what a galette. No, they wouldn't <laughs> call it that. A rosti, you know. So in Switzerland, <laughs> yeah. it's rosti. Every culture has anything that's famous. Other cultures probably have too, with slight different twists on it.
0: Right. If someone had said uh, the traditional Hanukkah rosti, everyone would be like, "What?"
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. But maybe in Switzerland, though, there may not be a lot of Jews there. Not a lot. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not so many Jews, even though it was a safe haven. I mean, even Dr. Ruth, you know, was there for a while, apparently. Well, we, we said we were not going to get into too much politics, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you
0: had you had said that you um, that Maria Gornashelli was your editor at Ladies' Home Journal, but she also became your editor editor in the cookbook world. What and she she recently passed away, but she was a. Can you explain to people what kind who maybe don't know how dominating a figure she was in so many well, first ways. first of all,
1: she was not my editor at Lady's Home Journal. Right. I only met her when I went to her office that was at William Borrow to discuss the possibility of the cake Bible that I really, at that time it wasn't called the cake Bible, but she was a great enthusiast of baking and I wanted to go to Knopf because Judith Jones was known for single subject books and Julia Child, you know, and, and um, everybody I respected pra- practically was at Knopf. But I had somebody at the time who was representing me as a literary, not an agent, a PR person. Okay, So she went to a party that and she met uh, Maria Gornichelli and she told her about me. And Maria said, I must see that manuscript. And Maria, yes, she had a, pub, a tra- uh, not a traditional, that you could almost call it that, of tossing people out. She didn't feel they took writing seriously enough. People were scared of her. In fact, the other day when I saw Alex Gornishelli, and she I knew her since she was a teenager and I love her. And she said, I don't want people to be afraid of me the way my, they were of my mom. And I said, it's just, you're so articulate. I feel intimidated. And she said, well, I feel intimidated by you. And I was totally shocked. <laughs> but yeah, Maria, yes, I was, I was afraid to cross her. But on the other hand, when I really believed in something, I had to stand up for it, which didn't mean that I ever raised my voice, which she did, you know, which is part of her intimidation. In fact, once I said to her, I'll tell you what I think, but only if you don't interrupt me. She was known for saying, what do you think? And then in a loud voice, she wouldn't let you say it. you know. So um, the one time that I suddenly realized, and I hadn't thought about this in all these years, but that I realized that uh, what had taken place between us was that Whenever I would speak, that's a slightly louder voice, I guess, or maybe at least with more conviction that I really stood up for something. She said, I was waiting to see if you felt that way. And she always gave me my way. And I think it was Kenji who said the same thing. She never said no to him. It was a test. I mean, she knew that I was a little shy and a little soft-spoken. But if I started really believing in something, that meant that she better listen. You know, so we had a really interesting relationship because she had a, a great respect for the different ways of doing things. And nobody had ever put a chart in a book, let alone weights. That was the first cookbook ever to have weights in. So that's how, you know, as much as there are times when I was really angry at her for good reasons, I will never forget how much I loved her and how much she contributed. She changed my life. It changed her life too. The cake Bible. It just, well, it was amazing. In fact, I remember at one point, Elliot said to me, you're more than just that book. It became my whole definition. And everywhere I went, it, everybody had the book. It was like in one day, at those days, it was 1988, and a book, a best-selling novel in its lifetime, was considered best-selling if it sold 18,000 books. But when the Cake Bible came out and it was written in the New York Times, almost two full pages by Corby Cummer, oh. and it sold 18,500 books in one day what? They were not expect. Yes, at William Morrow. They were not expecting this book to succeed. They actually had to have a, a, a separate telephone just to handle all the calls. It was like everybody had to find out how do you make cakes that are better, easier, and say, uh, and faster to do. Because Kirby had asked me what I did that was different, which is yeah. a brilliant interview question because it gave me the ability to to say what I'd done, and that was. And a let different me ask way you I a question,
0: Rose. Let me ask you a question, Rose. Um, what did you do differently in that book? You said that was oh. a good question. So I thought I'd yeah. ask it again. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was, I'm glad you stopped me because I was just about to say. <laughs> good, good question. Yeah. Okay. I changed the way in which cakes were mixed. And it was not that I invented a new way. It was that it, the common wisdom was that you could only use this method of, I forget what it's called, the inverse method, reverse, reverse creaming method. You could only use that method if you were using high ratio shortening, not butter. And and what's, the, what's, I,
0: the, what's the reverse creaming method?
1: Okay, it's what what you do. Now, I'm glad you asked because I probably have not gotten to it for another hour. <laughs> <To> <laughs> all my sides. <laughs> it's that, well, okay, I'll get back to the, the, the butter crystal the high ratio in a second. But what, what it means is that you add the fat whichever it is, and uh, to the flour mixture with the flour and sugar and, and leavening and salt, and just a small amount of the liquid first. And what happens is that the fat coats the flour to the degree that it doesn't absorb as much, so it stays tender mm. and you get a better texture. So what I was going to say about how I went took the leap of doing it with butter is that I used to do a lot of research because even though I got my master's in food at NYU, In those days they didn't really teach science. So I found these hardcore science books. And one of them said that butter between the temperatures of 65 and 75 will emulsify other ingredients. So I thought, well, that's not too hard because kitchens are usually no higher than 75. If the butter is 85, you you get a coarse texture. So, oh, are you still baking cookies by the way? Yeah, I I just turned them
0: around in the oven so they cook
1: evenly. Anyway, I made it about, oh, thank you. That was another great tip. So 20, I think it was um, 22 tries before I got the perfect ratio of my ideal cake. And I've never gone back. And people will say, can you use this for all cakes? Well, all cakes where the butter is solid because if you're making genoise, for example, the butter gets melted and that's different. Mm -hmm. And we won't even get into the flour discussion. You know, what really shocks me is two, two things about flour that so many people don't even think to put in their books. And I keep writing about this. And it was only Miro who, he said it was mind blowing when he made my favorite triple lemon cake using bleached all-purpose flour versus unbleached. What a difference it makes. Who, I think it's so, this? Miro Uskokovic is the pastry chef, my mm. really dear friend from Gramercy Tavern. and. The thing is that with flour, there are two important things, factors. One is to know whether it's bleached or unbleached. And the other is if you're not going to weigh it, how you're going to measure it. Because mm-hmm. if you if they do what they call the dip and sweep, and you dip the, the measuring cup in and then sweep off the excess, you get usually a much more um, higher amount than if you lightly spoon it. You always do actually. And then if you whisk it first before dipping and sweeping, you will get it slightly lighter, but not as light as lightly spooned, you know? So you might end up instead of a cup of flour of getting one and three quarter cups and people say, well, why is my cake dry? You know, duh. (laughs) So (laughs) So those are the two things that I really would like to put out there. That and that I think I'm most proud of having, Finding the solution to never ever overbeat egg whites you know how they always say re- recipes say beat until stiff but not dry and if you yeah. overbeat them those then beautiful you know they're brown, dry <laughs> it, yeah well it breaks down it loses all the beautiful whites lose their liquid and doesn't give the stability or the texture in the cake like in a chiffon or an angel food so with an angel food it's less critical I think but um, the, the what it the solution is that when you use cream of tartar, which is just a byproduct of the wine industry, mm-hmm. so it's not a chemical per se. If you use an eighth of a teaspoon per egg white, you end up you could beat till the cows come home, and you never can kind of overbeat that, even for twenty minutes or half hour. If you add too much, then it goes the other direction; it reverses. And maybe I'm giving too much information here. Oh, I love it. Not, well, but not for you. I mean, of course you do. <laughs> but if you use the pasteurized in the shell eggs or the pasteurized eggs that you buy in the supermarket, those the ones in the supermarket already have an acid in them, but you still use cream of tartar. The ones that are pasteurized in the shell, you use double the cream of tartar. And the first time I tried it and it didn't work, I added double. And I beat and beat and beat. Nothing happened, and all of a sudden, it magically came together, and it was fluffier than it and more stable than it ever been. So these are all these discoveries with ingredients and techniques of, over the years. This is going to be my thirteenth book, so you can imagine all the thinking and obsession that has gone into this. Speaking of uh,
0: healthy obsessions, I mean, well, for you mm. um, is the difference between bleached and unbleached flour which I know gets a little bit into like the super details for people but even if you're not a cook you know you you buy you like walk by the flour and you're like oh there's the heckers I like this one unbleached forever because it's you and I think people buy unbleached flour because it seems more organic or wholesome or something Exactly. but I you're saying to you're you've been saying to me for a long time and kind of nagging at me um, what kind of flour oh, should I use? Oh, that's right. And yeah. so what is the difference? Like, why do I use unbleached versus bleached? and Thanks versus for Issa. asking.
1: Okay. Well, unbleached flour has slightly higher protein content. So when you're making bread, you want to have higher protein in order to have the structure. But with the cake, you don't want it to be chewy and coarse. And the interesting thing is that with unbleached flour, it's like the particles of flour are little ball bearings. Mm -hmm. And they can't catch the, when you're making a cake, you need to emulsify and capture. Emulsify means to distribute evenly the Mm -hmm. sugar, the the butter, the liquid. And when it's bleached, it's able to do that. But when it's unbleached, it's smooth and it drops right through. And I discovered that many years ago when I was making a wedding cake. (laughs) It was, this is really amazing because it was a chocolate cake. I still remember this. Um, It was 12 oh, inch cake and it was perfect mm-hmm. and then and then there was a blackout in new york and just when it was going to be done so i put my finger into where i thought was the middle of the cake to test and see if it would spring back and it just kept going <laughs> it was because it had sunk so that's what oh. happens when you use unbleached flour right at the end suddenly it just drops or when you take it out of the oven it doesn't have the even support. The interesting thing though, is that one day I was making two things at the same time, which is always risky. I was making my stepdaughter's birthday cake, the Grand Marnier that was Mm. made in a bunt pan and I was making bread. And another thing about higher protein, it browns faster. And I noticed that her cake was browning faster in the oven. And I thought, uh-oh, did I use the wrong flower for this? Now it's going to drop in the middle. And then I thought, wait a minute, it doesn't have a middle. A bun pan is a tube in the center. <laughs> Puke off the hook. Now it would never be as it would never be as fine and beautiful a texture, but it was okay because it hadn't fallen in the center, which is if you don't have buttercream on it, you don't want that to happen.
0: And I think for and a that's lot of basically people
1: basically
0: it mm. I think for a lot of people they don't like pay attention to these things, but then they complain that their cake has done X, Y, or Z, like it's sunk in the middle or something. And so it does, you know, help you to know the difference between unbleached and bleached flour. And if you're really into your baking to try it out, even, you know, try the experiment yeah, well, yourself.
1: When people write on the blog, cause we answer all their questions. And whenever that we get that type of question, the first thing we answer right back is, What kind of flour are you using? Are you following the the directions? Are you substituting anything? Because you have to have full disclosure before you can really help. So
0: in my brownies and cookies, is it unbleached flour or bleached flour that I should go?
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked that because brownies really don't matter because brownie is not flour dependent. Right? because brownies
0: are the best.
1: (laughs) Uh I can't disagree on that. (laughs) And um, the other day, in fact, I was following a recipe that apparently went viral on the web that was using brown sugar as well as malt. And I use malt in a lot of my chocolate things because it accentuates the chocolate. And I thought, Mm. I really have to try this. I guess I should have known better because i tried blooming. Oh, they also bloom the cocoa, which is something that I discovered years ago when you're making Mm. cakes is that when you add boiling water, you get um, incredible enhancement of flavor from the cocoa. Mm. But when I did it in the brownie, it became more cake-like. And brown sugar has moisture in it, and that's exactly what happened. It wasn't as cakey as my, well, I'm sure I didn't bloom the cocoa. If I'd done that and I had done the, um, if I'd done both brown sugar and blooming the cocoa, I think it would have been a lot more cake-like. But my protege, David, was the one who who had alerted me to this, and he said, it has such a wonderful flavor, but I had to put it in the refrigerator to make it firm enough to eat. And so this is what I did with mine, ultimately. And it was wonderful when it was solid in the refrigerator. It had a wonderful fudgy quality. But I used my favorite fudgy pudgy brownie as my base for this. And now I'll go back to, I'll continue adding more, but I certainly won't be adding the brown sugar because I don't want to have to refrigerate it in order to get fudge. So these are the things you play with because whenever he tells me about something, I forget, I've already tried it sometimes. And I try it again. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I've been there before, you know I I know what I'm doing by now. When you understand the ingredients, you kind of know what's going to happen when you do. When you start making changes.
0: Right, and the there only are way surprises. to do it is to- Yeah, there's surprises, mm-hmm. but to bake and bake and bake and bake and bake. Um, yeah. Just keep going.
1: Um, the you, proof is in the pudding. No, so they, exactly, <laughs> or
0: as we like to say, the proof is in the popover. Um, <laughs> good one, because they both
1: go back to England, right? <laughs> I was so shocked. To... You know, when they translated the Cake Bible into English, English, you know, they said two countries divided by one language. And mm-hmm. I was so surprised that they called cakes puddings, because I was sort of putting something, well, like the inside of a Yorkshire pudding, right? Or popover, or- something that's more custardy
0: or ghettos, right? they call them ghettos. Like you'll have oh, a- Oh, that's
1: true, and chateaus. You know,
0: <laughs> ghettos. I like to have a ghetto in my chateau. Um, <laughs> you, also have, uh, <laughs> you also have have worked alongside with, next to every other, cause you are in that group, but like, like a legendary group of chefs from, you know, the 20th century on to the 21st century from like let's start with Erin Jean McDowell today right who's created the mm-hmm. pie book all the way back to um, what was your first you had a, a, an early interaction with Julia Child didn't you
1: yeah many actually um, I still consider her the best ever was I mean she started this food, food movement and she was so at every time in so many ways but I think my favorite Julia story is probably when I went to see her on television when I was 19 and we couldn't afford television. So I had to go all the way to Philadelphia from where I was living. But what and do you mean you went to go see her? Like you could just well, go I to the see her on TV. No, no, I went to see her on her oh. television show when she first started her television show. It was when oh I was gosh. living in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania. And my former husband was studying at Temple University. So while he was in class once a week, I would go to the dorm and I'd watch her on TV. And I never in a million years would have thought that I would get to meet her in person, let alone have her call me and congratulate me for being on TV. But that's what happened when the Cake Bible came out. I got home from the Today Show, and the first person to call was my mother, of course, and the second was Julia. And she said, I'm so proud of you, dearie. That was the greatest moment <sighs> in my life. I mean, who would have thought, oh, and maybe Heater, that her for giving me the, the forward to the Cake Bible. She didn't want to write another forward because she'd just written one with a book that hadn't succeeded. She didn't oh. know me. And, and I called her. Oh, that was so amazing. Cause she said, I, sorry, I can't do it. And I said, if, if you can't do it, I'm not going to go forward. So would you be willing to just look at the book? And she said, hold on a second. I'm going to ask Ralph. That was her husband. <laughs> That's, she was that generation, you know, where you go <laughs> to your husband for advice and she came back and she said, I'll look at it, send it and give me a week to decide. And the day after, she, I think she'd stayed up all night. She called and she said, simply, I see what you've done, I'll do it. Oh, I get the chills still remembering. I just knew that would launch the book. Between her and Corby, you know, you can do the best thing in the world, but if you can't put it out there, people don't know. And I felt like I had done the best cake book and she had agreed. So I have a special tribute to Maida also. I put her Palm Beach brownies but she, nobody did weights in those days, As you know I was the first person to do it. So I put her Palm Beach brownies with weights and a yes. nice little head note. A lot of the headnotes had to get cut because I always overwrite. <laughs> well, I don't think I overwrite, but publishers have a bottom line for how big the book can be. And by the way, the Savory chapter was completely cut. I had eight marvelous recipes. So either it's going to be a giveaway or we're going to give it away as, you know, as far as putting it on the blog after the book comes out. What were
0: some of the savory recipes?
1: Oh, I was hoping you'd ask. (laughs) Actually, I just made a list because I'd sort of forgotten. My favorite one, I think, is, and it's easy, is corn fingers made as madeleines. Mm. And then the other one that I really love is the, oh, I figured out how to make cheese straws with paprika without the paprika burning. I mean, I'm one quarter Hungarian, and this is another thing people don't realize if they're not Hungarian. Wait, anyway, you're Austro-Austria. Austria. I'm, I'm Austro-Hungarian. Austro-Hungarian. My
0: grandmother was oh, born good.
1: in Hungary. Yeah, great. Okay, then you'll know about this because that was well, one of my grandmothers, obviously. So you don't put paprika on in the beginning of cooking because it brown, it burns, and then it ruins the flavor. So I put it on after it comes out of the oven, so that they're fiery red and delicious, and that's the cheese straws. That's a brilliant technique. I grew up
0: with only burnt paprika because it was my mother's um, Uh decoration of choice on top of chicken. And it was like, okay, we are be putting on this chicken, salt and paprika that gives it a good color. But to me, the color was just little black speckles. And apparently it wasn't supposed to be little black speckles.
1: I do it after the chicken comes out of the oven. I used to put it back for a few minutes and I thought, why am I even doing that? It's just gorgeous. when you just dust it on top. And then of course there are, Oh, sorry, the pommiers, the quick puff pastry. I think that's still in there. Oh, and whole wheat pie crust, my favorite pie crust, with a whole wheat version for a regula. That's a rosemary. What else? What else goes into that rosemary rugula? It's rosemary and something else now. Pardon? Figs. Figs. Oh, that's right, a fig spread, thank you. See, it's oh, hard my. to keep track of all this stuff, especially when you have to leave it out of the book and then you start trying to stop thinking about it. So.
0: I think I think that the um, savory rugula is one of the great um, innovations of our time. You
1: told me about it, Marissa. That's how <laughs> I started doing it. You told me that you went to Philadelphia. So the next time I went, I tried yes. to get to that place. And it was only open at dinner. And I wasn't there for dinner time. And then I decided to start my own. I have a bacon that uh-huh. now that I really love. Yeah. Okay. So, you'll, you'll be getting
0: it. I'll be getting my um, shot very soon, my second shot. And I can come eat some of them. And then, of course... Um, yeah, the restaurant I went to was a restaurant called Abe Fisher, which is owned by um, uh, the same man who owns uh, Zahab. And um, he's a brilliant chef and he makes these incredible savory rugula that he serves out of a brown
1: uh, out of a wooden box at the table as if they were cigars. Um, oh, we have but to I, go there when we go on a book tour for the cookie book. I didn't know and I love Zahab. And he's also a fellow author at HMH, although we're all ending up the Harper columns. Oh, I did. Terrible. I tell you, this is so amazing because the cake Bible was written at the Harper Collins. Actually it was William Morrow, but then it was bought by Harper Collins. And then it was HMH, Harper, uh, Houghton, Mifflin, Harcourt that bought the ebook rights to it. And now it's going back to where the hardcover is because this is just a full circle because HMH sold to Harper Collins. Because that's uh, the uh, way the
0: publishing industry is.
1: Your it's book, nuts. Um-
0: It's nuts. And speaking of nuts, I'm going to eat some of my peanut butter cookies, which have come out of the oven. Um, I think, unfortunately, we have to draw this to a close. Um, Although we could talk and talk and talk. And maybe you could come on again closer to when the cookie Bible comes out. And um, we can bake along together. And you can do a little um, book tour right here on this podcast.
1: Oh, absolutely. This went so quickly and I wanted to talk about how pastry people build on each other's work and how what an inspiration you are. Look at how you told me about Savory Ruggle. I didn't even think about doing that. So yes, please invite me another,
0: back. Another time. But to all the people out there in listener land, um, you have until November 9th to buy yourself a, a scale to measure your ingredients on before this book comes out. If you don't already own a scale, I think... Levy Viberman would you not say that every chef should have one every cook should have one
1: it's probably the number one thing after that is the thermometer it's hard to decide but i would say definitely the scale first i would say two so judgment um, third <laughs> <laughs> good judgment can you trust buy your judgment? instinct <laughs> no. trust your instincts that's the yeah. most
0: important thing um, yeah but instead okay. of
1: instead of asking what how do you do something think to yourself what do i know about it already and what makes sense to me and you'll find you may have the answer
0: that's mm. such good advice for all of us my instincts always say uh bake more cookies and call rose mm-hmm. levy baron Brown. and is that how did i know that instincts? was coming
1: <laughs> <laughs> i know you got well Gosh, you. it's been so long <laughs> i've missed you too i look
0: forward to seeing you and i hope everybody um, goes off and bake something nice today thank you so much rose levy Barenbaum, for being here today
1: thank you for inviting me marissa love to the family and love to all of you out there <laughs> love to you yeah. bye okay bye
0: thank you so much for joining me and rose levy barrenbaum this week on secret life of cookies You can find the recipe for peanut butter chocolate chip shortbread on my website, marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa And if you will be so kind, please leave a nice review in the Apple Store. Stay safe, eat cookies, and talk to you again next week.